<laughs> so in preparing for tonight, I got to peruse the news, right? And there's a lot going on in news. And I realized that tonight I'm going head to head with the leader of the free world and the man who would like to take his job away from him. Likely what they're doing probably about now, I'm guessing, um, is sharing their various versions of truth. Who's right? Who's wrong? Um, do we even have a basis for gauging what is truth and what is not in this crazy world that we live in right now? Um, and I don't know. Frankly, honestly, I don't think I like my chances going head to head in that matchup. Between their ratings and mine, I'm pretty sure I would make pretty poor primetime fare. CSI, I am not. I'm not even a bad 70s sitcom. I'm sure you all had to make a tough decision. Debate? Me, right? Uh, let me assure you that what I will do tonight will be pretty comparable to the debate, I suppose, in finding truth, except I'm debating with myself. Uh, I don't have a moderator who will turn off my mic, except well, that's me, obviously. I'll turn off my own video. Um, something that you might regret, actually, having somebody else be able to turn off. Well, maybe Chris will be my moderator. Uh, I don't have a fact checker, a fact checker, unless you count Alan or Chris, or if a lightning bolt comes through the window and strikes him down, then you'll know. Um, I'm pretty certain I won't trend on Twitter. I don't do fake news unless you ask me how well I ski. I won't deny any allegations unless you ask me about my age. And the people who are in attendance are my three cats, socially distanced, of course, my mother-in-law, my wife, and my two kids who've decided to run off to a room, right? So, and all of you virtually. But other than that, pretty much the same, yeah? Truth, the discovery of which we seek throughout life is difficult and is hard for us in this day and age, in the news environment that we are, we are in, in with all the social media around us to discover what truth really is. And it's interesting that we all want to search for truth. At this moment in time, we feel that truth is critical to our lives. As serious as we take finding truth in our day-to-day -day life, in the culture that we live in, how much does truth matter to us within the church? We're gonna be challenged tonight through the words of Malachi to see a prophet who is going to bring to us an understanding that truth matters, that it is important, and that our walks with God hinge on how we view truth. Last week, address the worship of our own hearts, of our inward selves, and our heart attitudes towards God. You could say last week talked about that vertical experience of our relationship with God as expressed through worship. This week, we start to address a little bit more of a horizontal experience of a person's view of God affects the relationships we have with one another, and then specifically the priests with those the priests were asked to lead. We're going to see tonight how God takes truth seriously and why, and then we're going to see what truth means for us as it applies to the church. With that, why don't we open this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for the time that we have to open your word. We ask, Father, that you would teach each one of us of the, your truth. And those don't show us what the truth is, Lord, but impress upon our hearts how important it is, not just to you, but to one another. Father, I ask that your words would be made known to all tonight. And I thank you just for the opportunity that we have to sit at your feet and to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, Alan showed us a picture of people who had polluted their worship of God. And not just any people, but the very leaders of the nation of Israel. 
Worship, as I have just stated, is an expression to God of the honor and glory that he is due. Worship is the action of looking up and responding. Whereas tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about the vertical expression, the expression of our heart attitudes towards the truth, towards God with one another. What we learn is that corrupted worship points to a corrupted heart. And if it is corrupted, it demonstrates that our, our lives are corrupted. A corrupted heart is a heart that worships others, other things, and is self more than God, and it is self-centered. And in short, worship puts on display what we really think about our Lord and Savior. It is an order of magnitude worse when that inward attitude doesn't affect the individual believer, but it corrupts one who has been asked by God to lead others. And that's where we're going tonight. We're going to look at the religious leaders, continue to look at them, and we will receive in no uncertain terms how they failed. We'll see very strong words from Malachi, words of condemnation. So with that, let us read tonight's passage, Malachi chapter nine verses, chapter two, verses one through nine. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, insomuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. As we study Malachi, as we continue our study, the prophet continues to address those failing leaders. We see Malachi pronounce God's condemnation upon the priests. Then call forth to remind them what good and godly priesthood looks like. And then the prophet will wind up tonight talking about and demonstrate exactly what the offenses of the priests were. From these things, we will gain an application into our lives of how to, what truth means to us in our worship and our fellowship with one another. Through the prophecy of Malachi, we will see the principle that God is serious about truth and why that is. Then we will see the standard for truth. And finally, we will see what is to be done with the truth. In short, three points. Unrighteousness reaps condemnation by truth. Righteousness receives commendation with truth. And in fellowship requires communication of truth. Our first point tonight is unrighteousness reaps condemnation by the truth. We should be very careful when we talk about con condemning somebody. After all, we just don't want to just throw that word around and condemn many innocent people un un unwittingly. We don't want collateral damage, as it were. Thankfully, Malachi has been very clear about who he condemns. Remember what he said last week, when Alan taught us in verse 1 through 6, 
Malachi says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. That's very direct. And in tonight's passage, he repeats that again in the first verse of chapter two. O priests, this command is for you. Nobody should be shy when it comes to combination. Malachi is not. The prophecy of Malachi, as we gather and continue to read through chapter two, details a curse on the priests for not listening and not giving honor to the Lord's name. Verse two, indeed, says Malachi, I have already cursed them. The curse, the condemnation, the results, the punishment from God is already happening, according to Malachi. And they're already cursed because they are, have not learned that they are in the wrong. They have not heeded God's warnings. They did not practice righteous relation, of worship of the God they serve. As Malachi prophesies, they have not laid it to heart, meaning they have not taken it to heart. They have not learned their lesson. Now, remember, when we say prophecy, we don't merely mean prophecy in the sense of predictions about the future, although many people take it to mean that. It is often said prophecy is the foretelling of God's truth, the foretelling of God's truth. Foretelling does include teaching about the future, at least from what our perspective is about what the future is. Remember, for God, he's outside of time. So the future is, for God, ever-present. But the prophecy also includes the telling of the present sins of people, a warnings of coming, coming judgment, coming punishment, and pronouncements about his standards. And this is what we see in Malachi. There's a warning and a correction to the priests. Then we move on to verse three. And we think, as soon as we read this, that it's very hard for us to understand how this is a fair punishment for what may just be seen as shortcoming God, shortchanging God a little bit by kind of giving lesser offices out the altar. Why does that result in like, not just the priest being punished, being spread with basically dung from dead animals, but also their children are also punished. It's kind of a feeling of unfairness and it strengthens as we begin to understand it's not just the people who committed the sin that are being punished, it's also their offspring, their children. That doesn't seem fair to us because we're raised in a culture, and my mom said this to me, it's not the size of the gift that matters, it's the thought that counts, right? I mean, okay, you're nine years old, you get socks on Christmas, and your mom is telling you, oh, it's just the thought that counts. And you're like, no, no, I think I'm pretty sure I wanted action figures. But that's the kind of society we live in. We think, and we believe that anything we give to God, anything that we could muster up is enough. And really, God should just be satisfied with that. We're telling God, hey, maybe you should just be okay with socks. But God says otherwise. The humiliation of the priest is appropriate because the priest's offerings were injured, diseased, imperfect animals. And remember what Alan taught, taught, taught us last week, that the law of Moses clearly states the requirements for what these offerings should be. They are to be perfect without blemish, the first fruits of what they have, in fact, the best that they could give. But the priests ignored those requirements. They brushed them aside. They compromised. Their greed, their lack of respect, they pushed the boundaries as a result of that. They pushed the boundaries that God set. And in the end, what happens is that these offerings are not really sacrifices. They weren't costly to give. And so they became unacceptable to God. So think about this. What were the offerings meant to do? 
They were good, clean, pure sacrifices that were made to make the offerer of the sacrifice or the people that the offerer represented acceptable to God in payment for sins committed. That is, a sacrifice was an atonement for their sins. A sacrifice is made, the scales were, of justice were therefore balanced. However, what Malachi is pointing out to us is that an inadequate, incomplete, imperfect sacrifice, when that is brought before God, the sacrifice, instead of justifying the offerer, condemns the offerer. Instead of making the person who gives the sacrifice up clean, it makes the offerer dirty. And in very graphic language, that is what Malachi shows us. That the priests, by their own hand, they actually soiled themselves by offering lesser worship, by offering lesser sacrifices. And they stand condemned by the very law they were commanded to uphold. And thus, their unrighteousness reaps condemnation by the truth of the law. So in a sense, we kind of revisited a little bit of last week where Alan taught us about worship and adequate worship and worship that was a sacrifice. When we don't give our best to God, we are tainted by, when we are tainted by selfishness and ignorance and hard-heartedness, right? Is that the end of all hope? When we come to worship and we don't, right, we feel like we come away when we give our offering that maybe we didn't give as much as we should have, or maybe I didn't sing loud enough, or maybe I didn't prepare hard enough for helping out those, um, those five-year-olds in Sunday school. Do we feel like, are we forever condemned? Are we totally at a loss? Not at all. Because as Christians sitting under the new covenant, we have, God has given us the ultimate sacrifice, and that is obviously Christ who gives us hope that in our meager offerings are instead covered by the most perfect, most costly offering of all, and that is the death of Christ. When we accept Christ by faith, that he had died for our sins, then we can be assured that God has accepted us. Now, it doesn't excuse us to put our, try to put our faith into practice and in trying to sacrifice our time or our energy or our desires or our means, it means instead that we can see that our sacrifices are being enabled and multiplied by the work of Christ. The work of Christ enables and multiplies what we can give. Our work, our sacrifices don't bring us salvation. Instead, our salvation brings us the work. Christ enables us by being, giving us power because we are saved. And as a result, our hearts change. Our hearts change, and what we offer to God isn't what saves us. It's just a result of that salvation. Now, as we finish up our first point, we end in verse 2-4, and it is here Malachi explicitly states that the, Lord, that the Lord's reason for the curse, so that the people will know there was a covenant between the priests and the Lord. The fact that there is a visible punishment is not a sign that God is a vengeful, vindictive God that just wants to uh, give it to the um, give it to the priests. Not at all. God has to do it very publicly. God has to demonstrate through a very visible curse on the people that are failing that He cares about what is happening. That by their own sin, that they are leading people into sin, and God has to call that out because if He doesn't call it out very publicly. What's going to happen? People are going to continue to worship imperfectly. People are going to continue on in their sin. God has to very publicly say, these guys are wrong. Don't listen to them. That's what's happening. 
Parents discipline their children, not just because they want to get back at them because they violated some parental law. Parents discipline their children in order to correct them for their own benefit, for their own good. Kids are, not, are told not to play with fire in their bedrooms. And so when they're caught lighting candles at night while they're in their sleeping bags, they have to be punished. To let them continue to play with fire could lead to serious injury to the child and perhaps disaster for the household. And this is what God is correcting. He is attempting to avert disaster for the entire household of Israel. Imagine if this weren't corrected, how many hundreds of thousands of lives of souls are at stake here? It matters. This is what's happening. This is what we learn. The truth matters to the God, the Father. And so he has to call out unrighteousness and he has to make sure that the unrighteous reap their condemnation and it has to be done by the truth. We should measure unrighteousness in our own lives and the lives of others, however, this is a warning, not by cultural standards or by what our social economic standing says is proper or how our parents raised us or whatever righteousness of righteousness standards that we have set up because somebody else told us these things. Instead, righteousness should be measured by the application of scripturally founded biblical principles. As an example, there are some churches who make it a mandate that it's important to maintain a healthy balance sheet on the budget and that there should be a good reserve for a rainy day. And for many of us, this seems good, this seems prudent, but I ask, and again, this is not a doctrine, it's Rob 1-1, but this is merely a question. How much is enough to save? How much is too much to save? I believe sometimes what drives the answer is actually something that's driven not by scripture, but by culture. I was raised to kind of be a saver, to be somewhat thrifty in some ways, but I think that those are culturally imparted values given to me by my friends and by other people at church, um, by my parents maybe. Um, so I'm forced to ask myself, where is generosity and stewardship in all of this? Does my accounting of my or my church's finances demonstrate the use of what God has given to me, entrusted to me out of his generosity? Am I acting also in a generous way? Am I acting as a good steward? Remember the parable of talents where one man is entrusted with somebody who hid the meager amounts he had in the ground and was condemned for not doing anything with it, but simply returning back to the master the same amount that he was given. Where is faith when we have a savings account? Do I have faith to trust that God will provide for me or my church, that he will take care of our every need, or do I trust more in my bank account? Again, this is merely a simple illustration of what we might simply assume is righteousness, but could be a culturally informed value. Another thing to consider when it comes to the truth, and we must ask ourselves, is do we ourselves revere the truth of God as much as God reveres the truth. Is truth important to our relationship with God? Many people would say, well, truth is relative and what you believe is good enough for you, but it's not for me. But this totally goes against what Malachi is, has done here. He says that the truth of God matters to everybody. An imperfect understanding of who God is, much like the priest had an under, a misunderstanding of who God is, will lead to shipwrecked life a shift right spiritual life for you as well as for those you influence. 
Righteousness depends on knowing what is right. It is important for you to take truth seriously. From scripture, don't rely upon secondary sources. You must speak truth to yourself. You must learn it. You must meditate on it. It is important for you to surround yourself with like-minded people who will also encourage you to seek the truth. You should put yourself under teaching from the pulpit that seeks the truth. You should seek friends that would do that as well. Mind you, knowledge of the truth is a big part of our faith in God, but it's not the only thing. It only gets you so far. The other half of the equation to faith is an emotional response, a reaction to the truth. And we'll touch on that in a little bit. Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 4. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here is the warning from Paul. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In a like way, Paul was speaking about the priest Malachi's addressing. God condemned the unrighteous priests, not because the Lord needed to satisfy some urge or some revenge principle, but he did so to ensure the spiritual health of his people. May we understand how important truth is for ourselves and for our church in a like way. Now, Malachi just called out the priests, putting them on blast, as it were, and not just for any silly reason, right? But to make sure everybody had a solid spiritual foundation that their lives would not be shipwrecked. We now turn to Malachi's next word from the Lord, and he's going to be talking about a priest, but not just any priest, the priest. It is through the praise for this priest we will see that righteousness receives commendation with truth. Who is this priest? It is obviously Levi because it's called out in the text, and he was the first priest of God. And from him and from him came descendants who also were priests. In Numbers chapter three, verses twelve through thirteen, we read about these folks. Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. The Levites are the Lord's own possession. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 18 details the Lord's special instruction for the Levites. He starts in verse 1. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Boy, if I were a Levite, I would kind of say to myself, boy, that kind of sucks. I can't have land. I can own kind of really nothing in Israel. But God, in the next few verses, details how they should be provided for, how they should be given food, how they should be taken care of. And then down in verse five, we read this. For all of these reasons, they don't have a land, but they will receive all of this provision for the Lord your God has chosen him, that is Levi, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Moses speaks about the Levites as he blesses the sons of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 33, 8. And he says that the 
role of the Levites were this, that they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. God's own possession, minister about to the Lord, teach the law. So Levi's job was not to farm the land or even to own land, but to stand and minister to teach the law. These verses describe the covenant between the Levitical priests and the Lord our God. Now, these are the very priests that Balakai condemns. They aren't men who decided one day that they would wake up and go, you know what? I feel the call of ministry. I'm going to enter the priesthood. They quit their jobs as shopkeepers. Maybe they stopped um, tying rope, whatever it is, you know, or um, uh, crewing a ship. They went off to the synagogue. They didn't go off to the synagogue and raise support. They didn't go off their merry way down to Jerusalem Polytechnic Graduate School of Rabbinical Study and Practice. Good old Jerusalem Poly. No, these men did not receive a degree to minister. They were descendants of the tribe of Levi. They were born into the priesthood. They had inherited the role of priest. They could no, long, no more deny that they were priests set apart for God. They could no more deny their birthright than a cow can deny his spots or the sun, its light and heat. Their call is the call identified in Deuteronomy 18, be set aside as God's own possession. Now, if you were a priest of a Levitical priest and you read this prophecy or you heard this prophecy, your ears would have burned. He's calling us out. How dare he? Who does he think he is? But let's pick back up in verse 2-5, where we see Malachi describing the nature of the covenant between God and Levi. It is a covenant of love, life, life, and peace. Life and peace. Now, it's not peace, like worldwide peace, like I wish for peace in the world, goodwill to all men. But it's a peace that we should understand as a peace between the parties of the covenant. Whereas before, they may have been enemies with God because of the covenant. It's like a peace treaty that there is peace and life. Like two enemies at war, a peace treaty is drafted and agreed to. And as so long as both nations abide by the peace treaty, there will be peace. And this is what's being called out here. The Lord, for his part, said this, I gave them to him. I gave peace and life to these priests. Now, in these next first few verses, we'll go on and we'll see that God has all uh, the special characteristics of the Levitical priests, all right, that of the priests that entered into this covenant with God. And this is our second point. These priests were given, um, they were considered righteous and they are commended by the standard of the truth that is being laid out. First truth or the first trait, the first observation is this. In 2.5, it says, Levi feared me and stood in awe of my name. Both terms denote much of the same idea. But you know what? Let's be honest. That kind of sounds weird to us, does it not? We're asked to love God. We're kind of also asked to fear them. Now, if you're a parent, right, you say to your child, love me and fear me, right? That's still weird. How can we love and fear a person at the same time? Even for those of us who've been in the church for a while and instructed that fear is a good thing, feel it still feels a little odd. This is the emotional side of faith that I spoke of earlier. As a society today, we do whatever we can to remove all kinds of fear 
from living, from ensuring people have their needs met, to make sure that they have health care, to make sure that they are fed, or that their imagined needs are met. We live a mantra in this world of safety first, even if it means taking away things, even if it means denying ourselves certain things, all in the name of removing fear and risk. Yet here we're at, here in Malachi, we're asked to fear God, or at least the, the Levites were identified as being asked to fear God. It's a quality that is praised by scripture. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the wise preacher says, the end of the matter, and he's summing up all of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom that the preacher has, he sums it all up and says this, the end of the matter of all the wisdom I have learned, this is all, after all has been heard, this is what I now know. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Believers should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. David writes some lyrics in Psalms chapter 34, verse 7, and he says, he writes this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What is this fear? Fear is not a fear of harm, but a description of true piety. It is reverence and awe on the one hand, joined with love and hope on the other. On the one hand is to recognize God's holy power, his might, his wrath, his justice. On the other hand, it recognizes the love and hope found in the salvation that God has given to us through belief in Christ. Fear of God is looking at God whose hand of judgment holds us above the pit of damnation. And yet knowing and understanding and believing that he securely holds us in that hand from damnation, that he keeps us from the fires of hell, that by his everlasting love and mercy. There is a tension in this. There is a tension, and rightfully so. It should upset us at the same time it also soothes us. Fear should awaken in us that as we grasp and understand our fate without God, it should also awaken in us a hope, a love, and a gratitude that we are saved from that. Fear and awe do not drive us from God. They drive us into the arms of our Savior. Next, in Levi, there is true instruction in his mouth, as we see, which is really a poetic way of saying, Levi knew the law and he spoke of it. Not only did he understand what God was saying, he was able to talk about it. He was able to teach others. Remember, this is a priest. That was his role to teach the sons of Jacob. The thing about a good priest is that he can talk about good things. There's another characteristic related to the mouth. And Malachi writes this, no wrong was found on his lips. There were no lies, no deceit, no gossip, no ill words, no ill temperament that comes from a righteous priest's words. In contrast, the enemies of God, the unrighteous are not so. Psalm 10 verse 3 and verse 7 says this, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And then down in verse 7, his mouth, continuing to talk about the wicked, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Doesn't this sort of mark a lot of people in our time? Out of their mouths, you will know what their heart says, what their heart believes. 
Levi is also noting that the um, Malachi is also noting that Levi is noted as having walked with God in peace and uprightness. Walked with God in peace and uprightness, meaning that Levi lived a life that followed the laws that he had was teaching others. Not only did he the law, he practiced. Not, he knew, not only did he know the law, he practiced it. He put it into. He put the rubber met the road. He walked with the truth in his life. Another observation we see, Levi turned many from iniquity, turned many from iniquity. And we see here that the priest provided the message of God to the people of God so that the people would come to know their sin, repent of that, and turn towards God. That is the purpose of the priest, right? The knowledge that he had was not arcane or to be kept by on his own or kept to himself or only shared with a small select group of friends. They were shared with many so that they might benefit as well. The lives of the priest should also guard knowledge. That's what we see here. And while it seems to be that this almost seems to be the same thing as having the truth in their mouth, it really kind of leans more towards the priest knowing what is true and then taking care and defending, guarding that truth carefully. There's an understanding that to the prophet, to the priests, the law of the Lord is important and worthy of standing up for. Not content to simply provide the truth or even tell others that they must repent, the righteous priest will correct mistruth when it is found. Next, for also for the righteous priest, we see that people seek instruction from them. People seek instruction. It was the role of the priest to provide knowledge but then people came to them as well, saw in them a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of wisdom, a certain ability to be able to speak into their lives of things that they needed, guidance, judgment even. Because the priest also played a role in judicial matters. Ezekiel 44, 23 through 24 talks about how the priest also sat in judgment over matters that needed the decisions. Finally, of all the things we just spoke of, we could summarize this in what we find in Malachi 2.7. That the priest is this, that he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A messenger of the Lord of hosts. A messenger to the Almighty God. A messenger to a God who commands legions of angels. The God who causes the universe to spin. Who spoke existence into existence. Then... This then is indeed a great weight to us and a great and a heavy honor because the priest is burdened with great purpose as a messenger of this almighty, almighty creator. As you can see, the priest led not just the people, but he's also responsible for speaking the truth of God to the nation. All of this is again, our second point, that the righteousness of Levi receives the commendation, commendation of the, by the truth of the law. The first priest and the priests that followed him were charged by God to speak the truth, to take care of the people, to speak truth into their lives. What does the example of Levi then mean to us? After all, we're not Jewish, or at least most of us aren't. We're not from the tribe of Levi, and as far as I can tell, we don't sacrifice animals on Sunday, or there's no official physical temple that where God has declared that his presence is at, what does this mean for us? Peter writes in his first letter, chapter two, verse nine, and he speaks to the believers under a new covenant. And he says that, that this is who we are. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Get that? We are priests now. We are God's own possession. We are his firstborns whom he has chosen and selected to hold. And while we don't have the same responsibilities as Levi and his tribe, we have the same role to serve God, to mediate between the Lord and others, and just as much to allow others to mediate between the Lord and us. It just so happens that everybody's a priest, right? That there is no longer any middleman between us and God. We are secured by a new covenant paid for by Christ, and we relate to one another. We relate to the exact same God who cares about truth today as he did when he commanded Malachi to speak to the priests. And so therefore, just as much as the priests were under a command to honor truth and the covenant that God has set up with him, that is our command to honor truth, God's truth, and to honor the covenant he has set up for us. The truth matters to God, therefore the truth matters to us. It is important to remember that this is the role of the priest, there's a role for us, that the priest was not responsible just for himself, but that the priest was responsible for many. Therefore, we are also responsible for many. And we are going to see that as we move on to our final point tonight. It should be no surprise that when the priests go astray, God is very severe when he corrects them. Remember where we started out. Malachi condemns the priests by the truth that the priests were told to uphold. Then he compares them to what they should have been like, the first priest. And we understand the righteousness that God commends Levi there. Then finally, what we'll see now is that Malachi will return very specifically, talk about the priests and say, this is how you failed, A, B, C, and D. But instead of just focusing in on the failures of the priest, we should come away from tonight, from our third point, understanding that there is an application that from their failings, we learn what God is asking us to do. And it is this, that fellowship requires communication of truth. Fellowship requires communication of truth. In verse 8, you see the charge. The priests have turned aside from the way. And what Malachi means is the priests have turned from their covenant with God. And again, as we've said before, it affects more than just the priests. It affects many others. And why? What are the failings? How did they do it? Verse 2.8, we find out that the priests have um, caused many to stumble by your instruction. The priests themselves, their own instruction leads people astray. And we also find out later in the last verse of verse, verse 9 that they had shown partiality in their instruction. That the priests were partial in the laws that they were teaching about. Partiality in instruction likely refers to the priests either being very selective about what laws they taught on or they favored some of God's truth, but not all of it. Or perhaps they were not comfortable with speaking about some of God's laws because it was inconvenient to themselves. Or maybe it was inconvenient to people that they wanted to please. Or is it convenient to people they cared about? The priest may have succumbed to a desire to win favor or to make their own lives convenient. And as a result, they were not teaching the full counsel of God. So in short, the priest sat in judgment over God's law, determining what it meant, determining what was important, rather than letting God's law sit in judgment over them. 
But this totally runs counter to what God is like. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Moses recounts what the God is like. And he says that the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God is fair. And for the almighty God who will bring justice to all, we need that. We depend on that. If he was unfair, then where would we be left without hope? Because we could not trust that God will take, would take care of us, to love us, to save us. The result of the, these priests to lead the people to be truthful, ultimately resulted in, in verse 2-8, that the covenant between the priests and God was corrupted. The covenant was corrupted. And as a result, the people went astray. Remember an earlier passage in First Peter, where we talked about how um, now we are part of a royal priesthood. It's kind of a good news, good news sort of a deal. It's good news because we no longer need a priest between us and God. It's kind of also good news because it means that we are also priests for God. And as priests, our role is to mediate between God and others, allow others to mediate with us as well, right? And it also means that we need to mediate between us, between God and a world that doesn't know God. This means we are to fear God like Levi did, to share in, in his understanding of truth, and to have that truth in our mouths, to be able to guard that truth, to discern right from wrong, to apply that truth to our lives, walk righteously, and then instruct others. It means, just like Levi, our mouths should not be filled with lies, deceit, coarse jesting, or gossip. Let every word be seasoned with the Spirit. Does your speech demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, like the priest's speech demonstrated a covenant with God? Does it show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and these that these things have influenced your life? Or are you kind of a walking example of how God reaches even the chief, chiefest of sinners? Now, life is a sanctifying process. It's a gradual, progressive thing. We grow in our speech very much as we grow in our Christian maturity. So, you know, our faith is ever increasing, and so should that faith be demonstrated in our lives, be ever increasing. Living like priests means that we should also be speaking truth to one another. The truth that we communicate and the manner in which we communicate that truth should encourage and even inspire one another to repent of sin, to love the Father, to walk as Christ, to be powered by the Spirit. What does this look like? We should have joy in discovering God's word together, side by side. We should not be afraid of asking questions about the sermon with one another. We should not be afraid of working through the meaning of a passage or a devotional together. We should be as a fellowship. If we spend our times as a fellowship, if we spend our times watching movies or enjoying sports, but we are not actively seeking the truth together with one another, then we are poorer for it. But I am encouraged by you, Praxis, that you have a regular Bible study that meets almost every night, or at least did during the lockdowns. I am encouraged when I hear of friends getting together to keep each other accountable and to share scripture verses. I am encouraged when I hear that people get together and pray. Keep doing that. Share with each other the joy that you find in scripture. Don't just go, oh, I feel really good today, but say, man, God spoke to me through the word, and this is what it means to me. I want to hear how God spoke to you today about through a song. I want to, we want to know from your lips how when you came to faith, 
the account of the woman at the well spoke to your soul. Let the world know the truth of God revealed to you that Christ loves them by talking about it. Don't hide the truth by not talking about it. I challenge you at work, your place of work, to go and just talk about what you taught, what you learned on Sunday. Or just simply say, God has been really good to me today. I've really appreciated how I was able to fill in the blank. Speak about the truth of God like you know it because like you believe it. Valuing truth and communicating that in fellowship means that we should be relying on the authority of God first and foremost. Well, duh, you say. How many times have we off? But, but I, I answer to you. I answered this. How many times have we offered advice that is not based on scripture, but instead is based on our experiences or judgment or intuition or things you've saw other people do before? I ask you to evaluate the source of your judgment and your intuition because these traits, I'm not saying that they're wrong or invalid, but these traits are educated not just by scripture, but they're also formed by your parents' opinions by our friends' behaviors, by the blogs you read, by the self-help books you might have heard about, by devotionals, by others, by movie quotes, by fiction, by magazine ads, by YouTube videos, by observing people in traffic. We must be careful to ensure that ungodly and unwholesome, unwholesome influences do not contradict the truth of scripture, especially if we offer such advice without biblical foundation because we find scripture is lacking. How many times have we done that? Well, God doesn't speak to this. Therefore, I, I'll offer the best advice I can get. Might I suggest if we find scripture is lacking, it may be because our knowledge of scripture is lacking. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not that the man of God may be good for church work, or that the man of God may be able to speak to the people who are hurting, or that the man of God may help the homeless. No, that the man of God may be complete. Scripture is complete, equipping us for everything. We are called to be in fellowship with one another, to be in contact and to desire and to want the best for one another. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25, we quote to ourselves all the time, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see today growing near. And the best way to encourage one another to love and good works is through the word of God to be scripturally based. We are called by this passage in the spirit of Levi the priests, by the role that God has given to us as priests to encourage and teach one another in God's truth. As we have seen, the truth matters to God. It matters to each one of us. And as we have just learned, it matters to the church. So we have seen three things tonight. Unrighteousness reaps condemnation by truth. We see a people called to do God's work and not doing it, and they are condemned. We see righteousness receives commendation with truth. We see how God commends them for upholding his law. 
And then finally, we see that the fellowship requires communication of truth. That as a church body, we depend on the truth and we depend on preaching this truth to one another. There's a lot going on here in this passage. Truth is a huge topic, and I only think I talked about like maybe a small little part of it. And it's not merely, and we're not talking about merely just priests here tonight either. It's an understanding that the New Testament has called us as believers into roles under our new covenant, and we have to understand ourselves in that new covenant in relation to our God. We no longer need a priest, but that means that we need priests in our lives. We need truth to be spoken to to one another. That is what the body of Christ is for. Truth and the speaking of truth to one another is not left to pastors Kim or even of Gavin or even of Jason or Chris or Alan. They are not our high priests. They are not our go-betweens with God. They speak truth, but they are not our sole source of truth. We have as much responsibility to learn about what God is saying to us, to apply to his word into our lives, and critically, to encourage one another with it, to enjoy it, to believe it, and to really want to see others respond to God's word. We want to put the word in our hearts and in other hearts, the hearts of others. We, we and they should be growing from the planting of this word. And we want to live that word out as it grows in our own lives. So with that, let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for this time for your word to speak to us. We ask, Father, that you would continue to teach us about the import of your word, what it means to us, how much it matters to you, and how much it matters to one another. God, we just ask that we go away, not with the desire just to go and just do our quiet times and just to kind of go through the motions, but to really enjoy your word, to see it for what it is, words of life, and that we want to take that to others. Help us, Father, to really be able to grasp and know and take that to heart. And Father, just forgive us for the times that we don't really give your truth enough credit. And just teach us, continue to grow us, Lord. And we just thank you just for your mercifulness and your loving kindness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.